what we have seen since COVID, what practitioners, physical health, mental health practitioners are experiencing since COVID is starting to abate slightly. There's certainly a lot of fears of something returning, if not this Delta variant that we're all keeping an eye on. What we're seeing is an, a massive uptick in depression and anxiety, especially in children. The last statistic I saw is that 25% of children ages 13 to 17 are reporting clinical level anxiety issues. This is, this is not an accident. Now we can focus on the problem. Was it COVID? Was it the isolation? Was it, I don't know, but what we do know is that once depression and anxiety begins, once that thing starts to move and motor forward, the next thing that happens is maladaptive coping strategies. Nobody wants to feel bad for very long. Parents will make changes. Children will make changes. We will do things that make us feel better. That can be video games. That can be drugs. That can be alcohol. That can be pornography. That can be running away. That can be self-harm. So what's going on with this maladaptive coping strategy? How are people dealing it? That's why I bought, brought someone that I, I met in Vegas. We did a panel about mental health post-COVID. I have Jordana Latosis with me on my show. Uh, she and I were on this panel together. She's an amazing guest and she is a nurse practitioner who works a lot with addicts in recovery, especially from heroin. And we want to talk about the brain chemistry that is going on with depression and anxiety and other ways to get that dopamine moving. Welcome parents to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. Thank you for joining me on another episode. My guest today is Jordana. Jordana, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you, uh, you and I both won some awards while we were out there. I won uh, one of the top 100 healthcare visionaries award. Fantastic. So, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And I've got you live on Facebook right now. I'm also recording it because you've got a kind of a, a cool little background studio thingy going on. Uh, you are in a mobile health unit. Yes, that's correct. We function um, as the only 100% mobile addiction clinic in Michigan. Um, so we are in an RV right now that's about 30 feet, and we travel around Southeast Michigan providing services and treatments um, to the population out here. How do people find you once you're out there? Do they just notice you on the street? Do you park in places that it's it's more likely that people who are struggling with this issue uh, find you, or how do you bring awareness to what it is you're doing? We have a website. We also do a lot of social media presence, Facebook and LinkedIn, but yes, our our RV is a big 30 foot driving billboard. We do park in areas that are in a, a, a location that's easy for people to access. That's kind of the whole idea behind this. So what we do is we visit parole offices. We work a lot with Michigan Department of Corrections. Um, we do a lot of shelters in the area, transitional housing, three quarter housing, uh, low income HUD housing. Um, we do a lot of women's shelters um, because what we're trying to do is bring the treatment access 
make it easier for clients to to obtain it. Transportation in Michigan is very, uh, public transportation especially is very poor and the COVID-19 pandemic didn't help with that. Um, A lot of the Ubers and Lyfts and that kind of stuff kind of fizzled. Um, So people were relapsing and failing on treatment because they just weren't able to access the medicated assisted treatment they required. So that's what the mobile clinic is aiming to do. Jordana, how did you get involved in this work? Are, are, do you come from a background of struggle or just a background of uh, medical and mental health care? I'm actually just from a medical and mental health care. However, I do have family members who've struggled with alcoholism and opiate addiction. Um, so it's also impacted me directly as well as, as a a family member, also as a provider. Um, I've got an extensive background in uh, interventional pain management. So a lot of that overlaps. I've been doing pain management um, pretty much my entire career for the last 10 years, kind of overlaps into neurosurgery, hospice and palliative care, PM&R, physical medicine rehab. Um, and then of course, addiction medicine, which has been my primary focus for the last six years. When you and I first started talking about doing a show together, one of the things that came up is, uh, your, your attitude and your, um, your understanding about the accessibility of marijuana, not just to the youth. And you know what? I'm actually not going to use the word marijuana. I want to use the word cannabis because I believe from the research I've done recently, the word marijuana was a scare tactic word because it was it it was a Mexican word, and it, the American government wanted to really put a lot of meat and potatoes behind their scare tactics in uh, uh, the very early ages. So we adopted the the term marijuana as the bad word. So I want to use the word cannabis. It's a very neutral term, but the access to cannabis, the legalization of cannabis, and I'm in Boulder, Colorado, so we were flagshipping the experience. Uh, my listeners know very well that cannabis was my drug of choice and uh, I I grew it, I sold it. Um, I will still vote for the legalization of it because I really believe it needs to be decriminalized. But the the blanket legalization, where there's really nothing in play, there's no real uh, uh, concept of how much is too much. People say it's non-addictive. Healthcare and mental health care practitioners disagree. It's still a touchy subject because people really want to keep their weed and I get it. But the, in, in your opinion, are we dealing with a harmless plant that uh, it can benefit everybody and it is the golden thread of magical healing and should kids be using it? Is it okay for these children, and this is what we're seeing at the treatment center, children who are struggling with depression and anxiety use, utilizing cannabis for how they feel. What's going on here? The problem with marijuana, and you already kind of touched on this, is that there isn't any monitoring from the FDA or from any other government body um, that just kind of standardizes the percentage of THC. So every plant, everything that you buy, every different strain that is grown is slightly different. So it's not like going into a liquor store and you know exactly what alcohol percentage is on each and every bottle. And of course we can get into, you know, pros and cons on alcohol too, but like alcohol, marijuana has to be a a controlled situation where it has to be used in moderation. That being said, alcohol is not being, is not sold or available to minors for a good reason. 
Um, our brains do not fully develop until you're 25. And a lot of that has to do with frontal lobe development. That's where a lot of our cause and effect and comprehension and making advanced um, decision-making actually comes into. Now, what we do know about marijuana is that it will affect the development of frontal lobe um, of development. We know that there's cognitive re repercussions of too much marijuana exposed too early. Now, there's a lot of studies that have been done on this already. There's obviously more studies that need to be done. Um, we know that there's a direct correlation between the amount of marijuana that's used, how frequently, what the dosing is, through to directly to the amount of brain development decrease. We know that that's there. We don't have a magic number, though. There isn't a magic number for how much is too much or what age is exactly enough. Um, so from a developmental standpoint, people should not be using marijuana before the age of 25. Now, is that realistic? Probably not. 21 is probably going to be the magic number that's going to be implemented just because it's already there um, with the drinking age. But what parents need to know is that the, a lot of the information that is out there on marijuana or on cannabis is very misleading. Um, I've read studies and articles and kind of, you know, claims that uh, THC can or cannabis or CBD for that level can aid with the treatment for ADHD, um, anxiety, depression, and, and for the treatment of other substance abuses. And unfortunately, I do believe that that is very misleading. The unfortunate reality is just like with alcohol or any other substances, when you use a substance like THC, it affects your dopamine and serotonin levels, the dopamine primarily. What it does is it gives your brain an artificial signal that you have more dopamine than's actually there. And what your brain will do is say, okay, well, we need to slow production down because we have too much, which means that your brain's dopamine levels are slowly decreasing. Now, when we look at the basis of depression and anxiety, what we know with this is this is fact from years of study is that depression and anxiety are directly related to neurochemicals like dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine being in an imbalance. Most people who suffer from anxiety and depression have an imbalance in serotonin and, and dopamine to start off with. Now, when we use substances that are directly negatively affecting those we're not improving the situation, we're hurting it. You know, what's interesting is I was recently on a, on a camping trip with my wife and one of the experiences we had is that there were about six college students in the campsite next to us. And being in our fifties, we're like, oh boy, okay, well, hopefully we'll sleep tonight. There was some <laughs> drinking going on and then they got high and they were smoking weed and they were laughing and they were joking and were asleep by 1030. <laughs> <laughs> and we look at those types of experiences and, and being a hundred percent honest, I was quite, quite relieved because I got a great night of sleep out in the wilderness. They did too. We look at those types of circumstances and we say, what's the problem? And I can tell you from personal experience as someone who used uh, cannabis on a daily basis, multiple times a day for extensively for seven years, but a total of 14, uh, when I was high, I was happy. And when I was sober, I was suicidal. My, and, and what you're saying, I understand how that works, that, that 
The THC molecule literally copies anandamide, which is a neuromodulator, and neuromodulators help you calm down after a big exciting workout or a big exciting experience like almost getting into a fight or exercise or something big, and then your brain releases neuromodulators, and when that happens, your body is allowed to relax, and because the THC molecule copies anandamide, you get that feeling of your body going into a state of relaxation. And so people have that experience of chilling out instead of getting drunk and rambunctious. They smoke and they chill out. We, I have worked with parents who said, I let my kids smoke some weed so they can go to bed because otherwise their anxiety keeps up. And we hear this conversation, and I have to say it's the difference between day trading and the and compounding interest investments you are you are trading this moment for a long-term brain development experience that is not strengthening your psyche and we see it in the treatment center with kids who have been smoking way too much yet and this is where i'm coming to with my question more and more especially in adult treatment programs primarily in adult treatment programs they are using thc for recovery so which is it jordana which which is it is this thing good for us is this thing bad for us or is it just too gray it's bad for us just you know just like alcohol is bad for you just like too much coffee or whatever that energy drink well now wait wait hang on i i thank (laughs) thank you for saying it this is yerba this is a yerba mate drink it is sweetened with monk fruit so i am very conscious of what i'm putting in my body but good call out anyway my point being moderation with anything right yes if if you were to drink six pots of coffee a day you're probably going to (laughs) have tachycardia and a high blood pressure and probably a little bit of kidney problems right Right. i mean there's there's moderation right um marijuana in moderation in an appropriate age group can be okay is it a magic treatment for anxiety and depression absolutely not because we know how it's actually working in the brain it is uh it's a band-aid it is not a cure Um, And what is problematic with that Band-Aid is that temporary feeling of feeling calm can be very addictive. So the the feeling of being in control is what we're going after. Even though hearing, you know, speakers like myself and you listen, you know, reading the research, hearing kind of the, the controversial, you know, depictions on it, you understand that there's a risk, but the the drive of the immediate effect is higher than the long-term risk. That's almost, that's pretty stereotypical of any type of addiction, right? Whether it's food addiction, whether it's alcohol, whether it's opiates, it is an addiction. We know that this is an addictive substance. It is. It's just how our human body works. So what we have to recognize is that people who have a high addictive tendency in anything, um, you don't give them another addictive substance to switch their addiction into something else, um, which is why we focus on a medication called Vivitrol or Naltrexone to try to really aid in the treatment for opiate and alcohol addiction because it is a non-addictive substance. We're not giving somebody another opiate to get over an opiate. We're not giving somebody marijuana to get over a benzo. Um, there's, we have to kind of really reprogram that mindset of a magic pill out there or a magic drug to make all of our problems go away for a little while. The real treatment for addiction is is 
cognitive behavioral therapy. It's retraining yourself on how to react to stressful situations, how to take uh, a different proactive approach rather than a reactive approach, how to actually utilize coping mechanisms that are going to pull you forward, not hold you down. Because unfortunately, marijuana, as you said, in your own personal experience in the long run, holds you down and it holds you in this depressive and anxiety state that you don't want to be in. And so we need to train people to actually start taking steps toward healing. I definitely want to talk about your work with Vivitrol and now Trexone and everything. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. One of the one of the experiences I interviewed a gentleman who ran about eighteen opioid recovery um, clinics uh, throughout St. Louis, Buffalo, just a, a wide area, and they had started using THC as a and this was the word that he made sure we understood temporary way of dealing with the pain someone coming off of opiates experiences because the pain itself in recovery from opiates the pain itself can drive someone back to using opiates and what he was saying is that the use of cannabis in a temporary model was enough to allow them to deal with the pain so that they could embrace recovery do you agree with that or are you still calling foul i never will say that there is one way to treat addiction because everybody's journey is very very different sure there's a lot of people who use addictive known addictive substances to get off of opiates like suboxone or like methadone we know that there are double-edged swords out there and some people do really well on suboxone and are able to to come off some people do really well on methadone are able to come off the unfortunate reality is those types of medicated assisted treatments have a very low long-term success rate because again, we are treating an addiction with an addictive substance. So while we can say it's kind of the lesser of two evils, you know, rather have somebody using a controlled suboxone than a, than a heroin, um, we can keep them alive to keep trying for another day. They're still, they're still in an addictive cycle. So, the real goal here needs to be not just good enough. The real goal really needs to be full recovery. And so everybody's got a different journey to that. I, I personally do not agree that, that marijuana is an effective treatment for it. There's, there's better treatments out there that we know that are less uh, addictive. Vivitrol being kind of my primary fallback. Now, Vivitrol, or now Trexone, we used to use it at the facility with children, but in a very different manner than what you're using it. And I'll describe the way we used it. We only used it with children who were self-harming, and we gave them an extremely low dose and always right before bed. They felt no effects, and there were no side effects of stopping it. Even cold turkey, there were no side effects. And it's a, if I'm correct, it's a dopamine inhibitor, So it blocks the production of dopamine and the brain goes, hey, wait a second, something's blocking this. And it starts producing more, which is the whole point of a therapeutic process is that the brain starts to function and empower itself to produce more. It would take about two and a half months of nightly use. We had to get the kids through a, a, a portion of saying, this doesn't work, I don't feel anything. And then all of a sudden, two and a half months later, the, the desire to self-harm, the, the depression started to abate, the anxiety started to lessen. Like you 
you really saw it. You could almost set your watch to it. Now you're using Vivitrol, now Trexone, in a much different manner, and you're using it with opiate addiction. Is that correct? Opiate and alcohol. And alcohol. So the way that the or the, the naltrexone works on the brain is by actually blocking the the opiate receptors. I say it's almost like putting a closed a, putting a gate over all the receptors. Nothing can go in, nothing can come out. So if they were to try to use or drink, nothing's going to bind to those receptors. They're not going to get drunk. They're not going to get high. Um, and it, within in the instance of opiates can cause what we call precipitated withdrawal, where it kicks all of that opiate response back at you and they, they have withdrawal symptoms that are very intense almost immediately. Now, this isn't, this isn't gonna, this isn't used like Narcan, is it? Is it, it's not, it's not a recovery. It's not a, it's not an adrenaline boost. Correct. But what it does is like Narcan, Narcan is, is the same medication that's being used in a reactive situation. So when somebody who's overdosed and they're not breathing anymore, Narcan, the naltrexone will go in and kick out all of the opiates that are bind to the receptors and then wake you up. All of a sudden, the person's going to wake up and start breathing, which is what we want. They're not going to wake up happy. And if you've ever seen somebody come out of an opiate withdrawal situation, it, it can actually be very violent. Right. They usually will flip up. Um, they'll usually start swinging. They're disorientated. They're in kind of that extreme fight or flight response when they wake up. Yeah. Um, that is almost that's similar to what I'm, when I'm saying a precipitated withdrawal, that's the kind of, not to that extreme, but very similar reaction when people do try to use on Vivitrol, that can happen. Um, from an alcoholic standpoint, what it does is it decreases the cravings for alcohol and they won't get drunk if they do try to drink on it. And then when I say the gate is closed and nothing can get out, their brain is actually unable to um, recognize the triggering from the opiate receptor. So that constant craving that's being thrown at them from, from their own brain chemistry is being blocked, which means that makes it just that much easier for them to go about their day without as many triggers, without as many cravings and staying sober. How, how is the, the naltrexone, the, the Vivitrol that you guys, uh, uh, issue, how is it delivered? How does someone go about coming in, and are they coming off the street? Are these business people who are walking? Is it both? How, tell me the experience of someone coming into your mobile clinic. Addiction doesn't, you know, doesn't pick who is going <laughs> to attack. You it, know? It, so yes, I've right. seen very successful businessmen. I've seen, you know, people off the street. I've seen mothers. I've seen fathers. I've seen school teachers and healthcare professionals. Right. You know, addiction is, is not specific. Um, so I get a lot of people that are referred from physicians offices or from psychologists and counselors. I did mention that I work with Michigan Department of Corrections. So I get a lot of people that have been incarcerated um, for substance use of one sort or the other. And so they're trying to stay sober as they're kind of retransitioning into their lives again. Right. Um, and then I see people that just see the side of my van and they say, I need help. And they walk in. Those are the bravest of the brave, wow. I think you know, the ones that are, are just impulsively, can you help me today? You know, those are, that takes some guts to walk into some place where you don't know where you're going and talk to somebody that you don't know and ask for help. That's, that is a very brave situation. Um, and what we do is as long as their Medicaid is in place, we'll be able to give them an injection as long as they can pass a urine drug screen that very day. Or what we'll actually help them do is do some outpatient detox, get them ready 
and then bring them back and provide that Vivitrol. Is that now, about Vivitrol three days, uh, getting them ready in an outpatient? Is that three days, a week? How long is? It's about uh, seven days, okay. ideally, um, to be off of opiates completely. Alcohol right. is a little bit different. If, you know, if you're ready and you don't have any opiates in your system and you want to stop drinking alcohol, I can give you the shot that day, even okay. if you drink that day. Wow. You know, al- alcohol gives us a little bit more of a freedom window. Opiates right. are a little more specific because of that, you know, that precipitated withdrawal I spoke of. Um, but is lo- Medicaid in Michigan um, and in a lot of other states has a complete carve out, which means is if you're on Medicaid, you can get that Vivitrol that same day. Mental health is a carve out, which means it's covered 100%. So you don't have to worry about it. If you're a commercial coverage, then we have to kind of work with your insurance company a little bit, but you will never leave my clinic without help. Whether that's an oral formulation of naltrexone, whether that's some clonidine and some detox medications, whether that's just referrals to counselors and an appointment to come back, you will never leave without support. And we always want you to come back. Even if you fail, even if you relapse, even if you fall, that's okay. Get back up, come back. You know, we want you to keep trying. This is a this is a process. This isn't a one and done. And you have to, you have to keep coming back. We always want to see you here. This issue of addiction, mental health, depression, anxiety, the type of support that families need is it's so complex. Now we can simplify it for the families themselves just by saying this sucks your whole family's being traumatized, get some support. In the years of being uh, an owner of a residential treatment program that works with children and works with families, uh, in interviewing all these experts, like like today, who did, where Jordana's in a, in a mobile unit driving down the street that's a, a big billboard that says, help here, help now, you, you can get help now. It's still expensive. Somebody's paying for this RV that's been turned into a clinic. Somebody has to pay for a kid to go into treatment. So what do we do now when we don't know whether treatment's next? How do we avoid treatment? Support is out there. I've created a free Facebook group called Parenting Teens That Struggle. And I want you to go there. This is the commercial for the Facebook group Parenting Teens That Struggle. It's free. There's almost a thousand parents on there who are dealing with the exact same types of things that you are dealing with. If you're listening to the show, you're listening to my guest today or any other guest, you know we're talking about the kids who are really, really struggling. We're talking about, we don't know what's next. Is it another inpatient? Is it another outpatient? Is it another emergency room? Or do we have to go residential? At the end of mental health, unchecked at the end of addiction unchecked it's jails institutions and death let's get you the parent as much help as possible before we end up on the last line of defense which is jails and institutions get support take care of yourself first take care of your adult relationship second and by adult relationships. I mean, other adults who are going through what you're going through so you can get the support that you need. You can ask the questions without fear and judgment. Go to Parenting Teens That Struggle on Facebook. It's a free group and it has videos. It has these podcasts. It has other experts posting. This this podcast will be going on it live today. This is where you can get the free support and help you need. And let's try to keep these kids out of treatment. Let's keep these kids at home with you. 
But as a parent, you have to make the changes you need to make so the kids can stay in a home with a parent who understands how addiction and mental health issues work. Parenting teens that struggle on Facebook. Let's get back to our guest. How long does an injection or a oral dose of Vivitrol last? How long does it keep my cravings away? And how long uh, can I can I kind of count on this thing to support me while I'm trying to stay sober? The injection lasts for 28 days, which is why we like Holy it. mackerel. It's a full month of completely, you know, locked cravings. That means that you don't have to battle with yourself every single day. The pills, unfortunately, are 24 hours. That means that every morning you wake up and you take a pill, which also means every morning you wake up and you battle with yourself to take a pill. So we know that Vivitrol is more effective. It's in your system. You know it's there. It's like that good and bad angel sitting on your shoulder. It says, nope, you can't use today. It's not going to work and it's going to make you sick if you try. You know, it's a really good way to keep that mindset going consistently. If you, now, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. If you don't actually struggle with addiction, and I believe everybody struggles with a concept of it, right? Maladaptive coping strategies are part of human nature. Our design is to avoid discomfort. But it wasn't until I changed the food I put in my body for a good three weeks of very strict nutrition control before I stopped experiencing cravings. And I've been sober for 23 years and every single day of those 23 years, up until about a year ago, the cravings, that battle, people don't understand. When I, what I was surprised that, that Vivitrol injections last 28 days where you get the cravings to go away, like that, that's a godsend. That people don't understand how powerful these cravings are. It's not about you just need to make a better choice. You are literally in a second by second argument with your brain. Now, with 28 days, let's say I get a 28 day reprieve. What is it that you guys are expecting that I do as an addict? while these 28 days are going on? Am I just planning to come back to see you again? Or what is it you're saying, okay, now next you're going to A, B, C, D. What do I do now? The most important thing for an addict, especially on Vivitrol, especially coming into um, like a, a transition experience where they've been using or they've been incarcerated and now they're transitioning back into their normal life is to set up a emergency response team your own emergency response team. The cravings or a trigger, which is different from a craving, yes. is going to happen again. It will. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And you need to have people in your corner that understand how serious this is. Somebody that you can call that's going to take your keys and, and pay attention to you and watch you for a day, maybe two. You know, not listen to your excuses. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, you can go home now. I'm okay. Probably not. They, they know at that point that you're probably the most dangerous, right? And they need to stay. Those 24-hour best friends or spouses or parents or sponsors, uh, somebody that needs to understand how serious this is and be there, that is essential. I've seen so many times when people relapse, they hit a point where they knew exactly when they were in trouble. They knew that they needed to get out, but they didn't have that knee-jerk emergency call somebody to call and come and get them 
that wasn't available, then they, that, that barrage of temptation wears them down. So that is always step one. You have to establish that emergency key. The next step is actually really taking um, serious the amount of counseling and cognitive behavioral therapy that comes along with addiction. Like your diet that you mentioned, retraining your brain's reactions to situations and how you handle and cope with stress and emotional triggers is essential because those are the most, the most strongest and the hardest things to kind of overcome, especially when you're dealing with an addiction. You have to be able to manage those, those reactions. And so the counseling is imperative. It, that really is the treatment for addiction, is the counseling and the cognitive behavioral therapy and the support. Medications like Vivitrol are a tool. They're not the end game. The counseling is the end game. So that is the next step. Getting involved in a group or a support group like NA, Narcotics Anonymous, or Alcoholics Anonymous, or Yoga 12-Step Recovery, or Aleron, or any of those, Families Against Narcotics, there's, there's a lot of support out there. You just have to find which works for you, but then get involved. Stay with it. Go to the meetings. You know, Develop the sponsors. Those are the tools that we're putting, that we're buying you time for. Vivitrol is a way of buying you time so that you can start establishing your foundation. And the foundation is what you're going to build on. So that is number, that, that is key following up for Vivitrol. Now, are, is the research behind Vivitrol now Trexone? I told you that we had a, we had a, a practitioner, uh, an MD in our facility that, that had the low-dose version with the, with the children. You're using the high-dose version with opiate. Is there more research? Is this developing or have they, have they called it and say it's working for this? Let it go. Let's try to find the next magic bullet for the moment. Like, like how's the research going on Vivitrol? They continue to um, research naltrexone in a lot of different areas. So we're actually uh, doing big studies on naltrexone for use in fibromyalgia. Oh, wow. Um, it's actually being utilized in Parkinson's disease. Um, it's also being studied as a treatment for stimulant addiction. So methamphetamine, Adderall, that kind of stuff. So again, these are all kind of off-label uses and they're all still in the studies of it. But we are seeing, um, oh, and I forgot, um, obesity. So we actually do use naltrexone for food addictions and cravings and obesity treatments. Um, there's already a medication out there um, called Contrave that uses naltrexone for some of those cravings. So there's a, a wide variety of behavioral aspects that this is being utilized for. Is this something that that families can go ask their doctors about? Where do you where do you suggest that a parent who's listening to this going, I wonder if this could help my kid, my husband, me? Where do they start? Start with your primary care physician or your pediatrician um, or your counselor. You know, those are some of those key spots that you need to kind of start asking those questions and finding out where a provider is near you. There are also some tools online like Vivitrol.com and VivitrolFinder.com or Suboxone.com, which will all give you locations near you with providers that are offering this level of treatment. Okay, this this question is going to probably take us into a little bit of territory here because one of the questions, one of the problems, the issues that I know parents are dealing with when their kid is dealing with anxiety and depression, and again, this is where we started this conversation, is how when we feel 
the dysfunction of the brain, right? I try to tell parents depression is not a feeling. It's a description of brain chemistry and the brain chemistry is depressed. The, the blood flow in your brain is depressed. The production of dopamine is depressed. What you feel is hopeless. What you feel is sad. What you feel is, and trying to explain that, trying to get people to understand that anxiety is the amygdala sounding the alarm because something's matching a picture of danger that you took at some point in your life. You don't recognize it. You may not even know what it is, but the alarm is off and your body is going, hey, you need to freeze. You need to hold still. Don't do anything because if you do com- continue, you'll be in danger. And until we use the therapeutic intervention on that, we're still stuck in, what's the word I'm looking for? Because when the parent goes to get the kid and say, come on, we're going to the clinic to go get a shot, or we're going to, we're dealing with depression. We can't get out of bed. And it's not a bad attitude. Anxiety is not a bad attitude. This is actually an experience that the child is going through. So what advice do you have for parents who can't get their kid's brain chemistry back online enough that the kid is actually going to leave the house and start doing the therapeutic work, start going to the gym, to volunteer at the Humane Society, to go get naltrexone therapy. The best thing that you can do as a parent is offer support and understanding because what the child is trying to deal with right now is understand their own body and their own brain. And if you remember being an adolescent, that's pretty hard to do. You don't really understand enough to understand what's going on. Right. You have to think that the brain is an organ, just like anything else, just like your kidney, just like your heart, just like your liver. It's an organ and it does have imbalances. So somebody suffering from diabetes or kidney disease, you wouldn't tell them to just snap out of it, right? The brain does need support. Now, whether that's counseling support or whether that's the cognitive behavioral therapy, retraining how to react to things, giving them a coping mechanism like Tai Chi or yoga or volunteering at Humane Society or medications. Um, But a lot of times it's environmental modifications, it's diet modifications, it's um, lighting, it's sleep schedules. There's, There's so much that can kind of go on with this. So you really need to take this seriously allow the child to start working with a counselor and a healthcare provider to really start working towards what the response needs to be. Every child is different. Every situation is different. As a parent, you also have to be very cognizant that sometimes the treatment might not be easy to swallow. It might mean that some real sacrifices need to be made on the parent's stance, on the parent's side, because a lot of children are reacting to environmental stimuli that's out of their control and the parents control the environment. So unfortunately, that's not a conversation that a lot of parents, myself as a parent, would really like to hear that the situation that's happening around the child is actually causing some of the the manifestations of stress. And obviously COVID-19 took a lot of that and escalated it, you know, to the nth degree. Um, But you have to be aware that those are the types of recommendations that you're going to hear. And you have to be open enough to help yourself and help your child manipulate that environment that we're in. When we first started talking, a friend of mine, uh, Juliet, who was listening to the show live on Facebook, uh, wrote a question and she asked, how is treatment paid for? 
Uh, is this a county thing? Are you guys in private fundraising? How do you guys get money to support the community? And I, and I heard you talk about insurance earlier, but you also said no one leaves without some care. How, how is this paid for? So we are a 501c3 nonprofit, which means we take crowdfunding donations um, and we run a, a program called the Patient Recovery Fund. So people who do not have insurance can receive treatment. Um, so that's where a lot of that extra funding comes from. Um, we do write for grants through the state and through the federal government as well to try to, again, help um, support the clinic and our community outreach, our education efforts, and some of the treatment outreach. Jordana, how can parents find you, learn more about what you're doing, learn more about your services, and educate themselves on what it is you're out there uh, pushing onto the public? Sure, come and visit our website at www.recoverymobileclinic.com, or you can give us a call at 248-567-2334, and you'll be talking to me or one of my staff, and we'll be able to walk you through it. Um, and we would love to hear from you and we'd love to answer any and all questions that you have. Jordana, where are you guys going next? How long will you be where you're going to be and where do you go? Do you have a, a tour, a loop that you do, or do you just kind of go where the need uh, appears? Nope. We have a set schedule um, and it's the schedule is available on our website, but right now we're in Lansing, Michigan. Tomorrow we are in Lenaway, Michigan. On Wednesday we're in Detroit. So we do, we move around quite a lot but we're trying to just open up that expansion of treatment and we are setting up new locations and new um, times almost weekly now. So we are growing. And so hopefully you'll be seeing more mobile units out there and hopefully in your area soon. You guys are amazing. It was a pleasure meeting you there in Vegas, getting our awards. Uh, congratulations on being one of the hundred top visionaries in the U S for healthcare. And <laughs> yeah, thank you. And you guys are, you guys are out on the front lines there. It's, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. We have an amazing staff and I've been blessed to be surrounded by a fantastic community of passionate people. And that's why this works. Jordana, uh, stay on while I sign us off so we can say goodbye properly. So that's it. That's that's people, that's someone, she's out on the front lines. That's that's these warrior nurses who are out there in the trenches doing what needs to be done, making sure that people are getting what they need, whether or not they can pay for it. Getting these insurance companies to take care of these people. Look, if you can, if you can if you can help Jordana with what she's doing, go to her website, make sure that it, you find a way to make a donation to what they've got going on. Find a way to help. Come do this work. It's so fulfilling. It's so amazing. I want to thank Deepin Productions for the production of the podcast, for creating this great music. I want to thank Your Cause Consulting for helping me make sure that this podcast gets in front of all the people who actually need it. This is helping parents, helping their families. And I want to thank you, listeners, for sticking with me through all these shows, making Beyond Risk and Back an A number one parenting podcast. And I just want to say thank you. Thanks for, thanks for sharing us, liking us, subscribing to us. You can find us wherever you download your podcasts and go to Parenting Teens That Struggle, the free support group on Facebook. We're there all the time and other parents are there helping parents. Parents, you need to remember this. Take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because that's how we do our best work with our children. My thanks to 
Jordana Latosas for her wonderful interview today. And we will talk next week.